The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Missions Sunday, and this is something that we do each year around this time, and part of the hope and goal of this is that we can One, take some time to celebrate, reflect, think about what God is doing uh, across the world. Um, But also, two, that we could reconsider and reevaluate our church's participation in God's work and our individual participation in that as well. And so uh, this morning we're going to be looking at a psalm that speaks along those lines, um, but also as was mentioned earlier, later this evening we're going to be gathering again to um, think and hear from a ministry partner in particular that is new to us and and also to just, again, further keep this flame alive in our, our church that God might be gracious to use a small church in Salt Lake City, Utah to be a, a part of something that is great and magnificent that he is doing around the world with all the glory to him. So this morning we're we're going to Hope, uh, or hope that we can continue to fan that into flame and as we look at Psalm 65. But in opening, uh, I want to th- first begin reflecting on a missionary by the name of John Patton. John Patton, uh, he existed in the uh, 19th century, but in 1839, there were two British missionaries by the names of John Williams and James Harris that they set foot on a stretch of islands formerly known as the New Hebrides, or today known as uh, Vanuatu. And these islands exist in between, uh, if you could draw a straight line from Australia to uh, Hawaii, these islands are off off of the coast uh, near Australia. But these two missionaries, uh, within minutes of setting foot on one of these islands, they were immediately killed and then eaten by cannibals. This is a tragic reality of them trying to take the gospel to a place that was unknown. So just shy of 20 years later, John L. Patton, he's a Scottish missionary, he set foot on the same stretch of islands. And within the first year of arriving on the island, his wife and his newborn son both died of fever. John remained on the island and served alone for four years, and he lived in constant danger until he was finally driven off the island himself in 1862. Later, the the idea and the heart for these people on this island did not go away, and so John, he got married again in 1864, and he returned with his new wife, Margaret, to another smaller island that was in the same chain. And there they would remain and serve as missionaries on the islands of Vanuatu for the next 41 years until John was 81 years old. And it was that same year that he left that his wife Margaret passed. But as we think about John Patton setting foot on these islands, um, through a short biography put together by John Piper and and then also uh, with Patton's autobiography, I want to help set the context of, of what this, the people that he was reaching. 
Piper says this, to better understand the context, the native people on these islands were cannibals and occasionally ate the flesh of their defeated foes. They practiced infanticide, uh, infanticide, so death of infants, killing infants, and widow sacrifice. Killing of widows of deceased men so that they could serve their husbands in the next world. And here Patton describes them when he returned again in 1866. He says, their worship was entirely a service of fear. It's aimed to propitiate this or that evil spirit to prevent calamity or to secure revenge. They deified their chiefs so that almost every village or tribe had its own sacred man. They exercised an extraordinary influence for evil. These village or tribal priests, and they were believed to have the disposal of life and death through their sacred ceremonies. They also worshiped the spirits of departed ancestors and heroes. And though their material idols of wood and stone were, uh, were made of wood and stone, they feared spirits and sought their aid, especially seeking to propitiate those who presided over war and peace, famine and plenty, health and sickness, destruction and prosperity, life and death. Their whole worship was one of slavish fear, and so far as ever I could learn, they had no idea of a God of mercy or grace. Today, roughly 100 years after Patton's death, about 92% of the population identifies itself as Christian, with perhaps 41% of it being evangelical, if we get more specific. There are many stories that we could tell uh, between that time from when he first set foot to now, but one of the questions that I want to bring us to is this. What in the world is a man like this thinking? That he would risk his life that he would risk his family's life for a people that he's never even met. met. They just exist in his mind. is <laughs> some far out there, on some far out there island. Why would he do this? For a life in which he would live amidst the constant tumult of a lost people, always wondering if each day would be his last. Patton was a singular man who participated in a wider movement of God to engage and reach these remote destinations, the farthest seas. But it is in his autobiography that he has helped capture the nature of God's work and plant seeds in future generations for the continued work of missions. Patton's heart was for the ends of the earth to experience the flourishing joy of God's presence. And where did he get this heart from? He got it from God. This is the heart of God. So this morning, we want to look at Psalm 65. And as we set up a little background before reading it, Psalm 65 is ascribed to David, the shepherd king, the one who defeated Goliath and performed many great works through the strength and power of God. In general, the psalm comes across as a psalm of praise, which could be appropriately recited during either the, a spring, the springtime or during a fall harvest to give thanks and praise for God's abundant provision. But often, as we find with many of David's psalms, he has a vision for things before his time. And for me, this is one of those psalms that anticipates a future glory. 
It anticipates a joy that's not fitting for just a mere harvest, as glorious as a harvest is. So let's, let's read the psalm together. Psalm 65. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Verse 1. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves and the tumult of the peoples. So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain. For so you have prepared it. uh, You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain, and they shout and sing together for joy. The word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, as we open this psalm, this passage this morning, we are going to see something of your heart, something of your movement, Lord. So, Father, as we, as we look at this, uh, would you help draw our attention to you? Would you help us love in the way that you love? Lord, would you help us to have faith as you as the only reliable source of hope and confidence and trust? And Lord, I pray that in our church and in each of us, Lord, that we could participate in your work to move towards the ends of the earth. So Lord, would you use this psalm to encourage us in that? Lord, to wake us up if we've fallen asleep. Would you use it, Lord, for our, uh, for our joy and for your glory? So we praise these things, pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So in considering the psalm, I'm going to make three observations and, and follow it with three brief applications for us all. So the first observation is this. The nature of God demands that all draw near and praise him as God. The nature of God demands that all draw near and praise him as God. So the psalm starts with a call to praise, and that praise is due to God. And specifically, it's due to the God who is in Zion, that is the God of Israel, the one who dwells with his people, which is in the epicenter of Jerusalem. And we're, lo- we're brought to that geography, that location, as we later see language of, of courts and house and temple. But the idea of praise here in the original language is not a praise of jubilance or song or shouting, but rather the idea of praise is is one of silence, one of a quiet submission before God. 
a reverence before a holy God. So in this praise, we're called to calm ourselves, to quiet ourselves before him in praise and recognition that he is God alone. And in this, all vows that are to be made to God are to be followed through with. He is the one who hears all prayers and to whom all flesh shall come. And here we see this inclusion of the words all flesh, which is interesting because all flesh is is more of, of a word that would drive the idea that God is calling not just Jews, but he's calling Gentiles to himself. He's calling all across the surface or the face of the earth to come and recognize him as God. So God, the holy creator of the world, is worthy of praise from all flesh, both Jew and Gentile. Why? Because he is worthy of this reverential praise and recognition as God. It's appropriate that all of creation should flock to him. Because of his nature, it should be like we are metal to a magnet. To come and to give him due honor and glory and praise. Because that's what the magnitude of his nature deserves. Praise and worship of his name. Yet, as is true to life, this is not how, all, not how things work. We all notice that uh, all of creation does not naturally draw near to God for a couple of reasons. First of all, nature often just does not recognize him as God. And by nature, what I mean is, is people, the world, the earth, does not recognize him as God. But two, people aren't able to draw near due to iniquity, a rebellion, a sin. One cannot actually approach him. There is a gulf between his holy nature and man's sinful rebellion and rejection of him. So though God is deserving and worthy and, and do all praise, we see uh, God's acknowledgement and response of our predicament. Instead of us drawing near to, to him, he's the one that actually makes the first move. And we see this both in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, Matters of iniquity, they prevail against me, but you atone for our transgressions. God is the one who atones. So though we might come before an altar with an animal sacrifice or David and someone in that day might, they are not actually the one providing the atonement. He says, God is the one that does that. God atones. He's the one who makes the first move to provide the path of forgiveness. In verse 4, it says, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. So notice here, too, that God is the one who makes the first move to choose to bring near those who are to dwell in his courts. And this shows the the nature of our problem, that we cannot actually approach God on our own initiative, but that God must choose and bring near. So the proper response to God's choice is this to consider oneself blessed and rejoice that you have been brought near to dwell in his courts. It's to be emphatically happy that God has overcome your inability to draw near by your own power and resolve. So, just quickly, in these two points, we see that God is the one that atones. God is the one that chooses and draws near. God is the one who is actually making the first move. He's making the first move to save a guilty world. 
In a beautiful turn of events, the one who receives this atonement, this gift to dwell in God's courts, the end result of it is satisfaction and praise. And verse 4 just brings that out clear. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. This is the beautiful work of God that he would perform these kinds of awesome deeds on behalf of his people. And this is what David acknowledged and gives praise for both in his life and on behalf of his other Israel brothers and sisters. But the salvation is not only for David. The salvation is not only for Israel alone. And this leads us to our next point. Second point, the ends of the earth need an awesome work of God to bring about a saving righteousness. The ends of the earth need an awesome work of God to bring about a saving righteousness. So as we come to verse 5, it says, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. So we find again this theme of how God answers David and Israel by providing his people salvation. But quickly, David expands on this idea in recognizing that God is also the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas. And if you can imagine yourself existing in the time of of Israel, or maybe you can even imagine yourself just as a Christian living today, Sometimes I think that many of us who are on the inside of something, in the inside of God's blessing, that we can fall into a trap of thinking that God is only for a select elite group of people, those who are chosen. So historically for Israel, this could surface as a form of ethnocentrism. It could surface today for a form of entitlement or cultural elitism. That God has done a work for us, and he's only for us. But here, David blows right through that. And he's not content to think that God is God is only for those who dwell in Zion. But he sees God as the hope of the ends of the earth. David lifts his gaze to see that God is the creator of the heavens and earth. And so there's a movement here that goes from just Zion outward. So verse 5 says, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. What are these awesome deeds? Well, for David and for Israel, it certainly would include God's many revelations of himself to the patriarchs of the faith. An awesome deed would probably also include the exodus from Egypt, God's preserving power in the wilderness, and then ultimately their entry into the promised land. These were righteous works of God on behalf of his people. And that's true, but ultimately I think what David is looking forward to is a future reality in which God will answer his people ultimately with a saving righteousness. And through the saving righteousness, all will be right and just, existing in peace and security in the presence of God. David is longing for a saving work that is effective, that is final, that is lasting. 
in which one is satisfied in the goodness of the house and the holiness of God's temple. And as you look at the history of Israel, and we just look at our life experience today, we see how fleeting satisfaction, satisfaction and goodness are. We can't hang on to them. They're here one moment and gone. So I think in this, David is longing for an answer from God in a righteous work that is lasting, and he longs for that. And his longing is not just that Zion would exist and last eternally in the city itself, but this longing would be carried out beyond Zion, beyond Israel. They'd be carried out to the ends of the earth. And so it's one thing for God to work on behalf of a nation, a people. But how is he going to go about becoming the salvation and hope to the ends of the earth? In verses uh, 6 and 7, help show us how he's going to go about this, what he's going to do here. So it says, first, by his strength, he established the mountains, and he is girded with might. So here we see that God is the sovereign, omnipotent creator. And by his work of creation and his governing over the earth with might, he is the only one that is capable, that is strong enough to be a reliable source of hope and confidence and trust. Many nations had their God that would move with them and take care for them, or so they attributed. But here, God is not just the God of this singular nation, Israel. God is the God of the ends of the earth. It's all His. It's all His creation. And He is the only one that is able by his strength, the strength in which he established the mountains to perform this task. Second, we see, how is he able to do this? He is the one who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves. So similarly, the statement points out to God's sovereign reign over creation. But there's another aspect to this description, that not just that God can calm the seas, which he did through Christ, but we see that there is a calming presence of God to the chaotic, tumultuous realities of the world. That where God is present, he brings a peace, a stilling, a quiet, a calm. And not only does God sovereignly reign and still the seas, but here the next line, he also stills the tumult of the people. So where God goes and where people are in a state of roaring, tumultuous chaos, we see that God is powerful, but he also brings a stilling, peaceful presence to that chaos. So what what does this tumult look like in the past and today? Well, just is if you take a quick scan through the Bible, you see it show up in Cain with the first murder. You see it show up and regress and get worse through his descendants. We see it in the wickedness proceeding proceeding and leading up to the flood that God has to hit a reset button, that things are so bad. We see it in the Tower of Babel that there's a pride in thinking that people can ascend to God. 
that then God scatters them across the ends of the earth. We see this chaos that if any of us have read through any history, at some point in every country's history, there is going to be a trail of bloodstains. And these bloodstains usually come in an attempt to gain control, to gain power of geography, of resources, of economics. The world watches Russia and Ukraine right now on that level. We opened with John Patton and think about the islands of Vanuatu and the animistic, cannibalistic realities of the people far from God. This is the chaos and the tumult of the nations far from God. And it is in response to this bloody history that there's a need for the awesome work and righteous salvation of God to come and to still the tumult of the peoples. So what is God's response to this tumult, to the peoples, to the nations? Well, it says he's heard the prayers. He's going to answer in righteousness. He hears the cries amidst injustice. He, hears the un- he sees the unrighteousness and the um- oppression. And God himself enters into the roaring tumult of the world. Why? Because at the core, God's heart is a, is a heart of love for his people and his creation. And at the core of God's character he is a missional God. Being a missional God, how does he go about this work? What does it look like? What is God's missiology, which is just a fancy way to say, how is he going to go on mission? What's his plan? Well, we see since the fall of the Garden of Eden, God has been on mission to raise up an offspring who will come in a saving righteousness to provide victory over death and evil. We fast forward. We see that God chose Abraham to become the father of a multitude of nations. He chose a man that him and his wife were in old age and had no kids of their own. His wife was barren, but God chose what was weak in order to display his own power and resolve and faithfulness to his mission. To Abraham, he said this, and I will make you... Make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the question is at hand, how will God go about blessing the families of the earth? Well, through Abraham, God raised up a number of nations and kings, But it was through the nation of Israel in particular who God would closely identify himself with in front of a a watching world and in front of surrounding nations. For a time, one could argue that God was seemingly, uh, or one could argue that seemingly God's Old Testament missiology was this if you build it, they will come kind of model. So he built up Israel, He, he gave them kings. It reached its height under the kingly reign of of David and then the handoff to Solomon, even more so. And as God blessed Israel, we see that there's kind of what would be a centripetal movement. It's a movement that 
moves inwards as opposed to centrifugal, which goes out. But there's like a centripetal movement that as God lifts up his people and his nation, it seems that he is going to bless the world in, in and through Solomon and through the king and through, through Israel. Yet this model did not hold. Instead, Israel was perpetually unfaithful to God and the nation unraveled in the years to come. But God made a promise to David, a promise that an offspring, a king, would inherit the throne and rule forever. That this king would enter into the dark and broken and wicked and tumultuous world. And that this long-anticipated king comes not in worldly power, but this king comes in the form of a servant to go head-to-head with death, the devil, and all that is wrong. And as this king comes in a servant, the ironic tragedy is that the world rejects him. Even more so, his own people reject him. He's betrayed. He's beaten. He's abandoned by his friends. But even more so, he's abandoned by his own father. As he bears the full wrath of God dying on a cross. And this is the ultimate sign that I think verse 8 anticipates. So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. The ultimate sign is that Jesus died, but he didn't just die and stay dead. Jesus died and he was raised again to new life. And anyone who trusts in him will be raised again to new life to live eternally in the presence of God in fullness of joy and satisfaction. And we see this emphatic claim of this work of God, and he says, you make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. This statement here of the going out of the morning and the evening is likely descriptive language to encapsulate everything on earth from east to west under the rising and setting sun. And so it's the work of Christ, the good news of the gospel, that will bring joy everywhere the sun touches, from east to west to the ends of the earth. So when we think about God's missiology, is that he goes directly into the tumult in order to bring a saving righteousness and a stilling peace to a lost and broken world. But God's missiology doesn't stop here. He invites the people to follow the same path. He invites his people. He invites us to walk the same path that Christ walked in witnessing to the ends of the earth. That as Christ became a servant, we too become servants and ambassadors of God's work. As Christ is the ultimate sign, producing awe before the ends of the earth, our lives are like many signs of this awesome work. There are many signs to this work before a watching world. And it's upon the ascension of Christ to go be with the Father that he promises us one greater who can bring about a work that Christ himself is overseeing, but he promises us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he commissions us to go and make disciples of all nations. So through Christ and the work of the Spirit, there's a shift 
a drastic shift in God's missiology, so to say. We see a new and dynamic centrifugal movement, right? So with a centrifuge, you know, you, you put things in, it spins around, it pushes stuff out to the outside. And here, this is the work that God begins, is that he gives his Holy Spirit, and immediately the people go, Phew. And in this, the movement is external, that the church might go and bring the message of salvation to the ends of the earth. And so we, the church, collectively, sacrificially, we become partners with Christ in this mission to name Christ where he is not currently known. Alongside of Jesus, Christians are called to enter into the darkness and tumult of the world to bring the good news of saving righteousness. So the question is, who's ready? Are we ready to receive this call? Are we ready to humble ourselves in the way that Christ humbled himself as a servant? The ends of the earth needs to know about this awesome work of God to bring about a saving righteousness. And the church is invited into the sacrificial joy to be part of God's global redemptive plan. And we've got nothing to lose. Because Jesus has already secured for us a promise that is beautifully illustrated here in this last point. Let's move to the last point. The end result of God's awesome work is the flourishing presence and joy of God. The end result of God's awesome work is the flourishing presence and joy of God. And here we come across this uh, poetic section of Scripture that just screams life and joy and fulfillment and abundance. There might not be a more beautiful section of Scripture displaying the presence of God on earth and how his creation works in harmony with his presence. And it illustrates the purpose, for mankind, purpose of mankind's enjoyment of God in and through the earth. The way that he intended things in the garden. And the, the way that he is, or the thing that he is moving us towards in the end. There's a beauty, there's a wholeness, an abundance, a rest, a joy, and just an overall aesthetic of care and provision. In verse 9, David says this, you visit the earth and water it. God is the one who visits the earth. And the verb visit carries with it this idea of to care, to attend, to seek. Not so much that uh, he is himself a master gardener or chief shepherd or primary steward, though he is all those things, but more so that it is his presence that waters the earth. It is his presence that causes it to thrive and to flourish in unimaginable abundance and overflow. That is what the presence of God does where it is. And David goes on to say, the river of God is full of water. To me, this highlights a relationship between God and water in a way that uh, points out the nature and ministry of the Holy Spirit. In John 7, he says this, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This leads me to conclude that it is the Holy Spirit's presence who causes a heart to overflow with living water, which results in a flourishing joy both in this life, but then more, even more so in the life to come. And not just in a heart, but actually in our literal landscape, in the earth, as it bears fruit the way that God intended it to. If this imagery doesn't get us going, I don't know what will. We see from Genesis in the Garden of Eden and then again in Revelation, in the new heavens and the new earth, there is a river of God. And the river is representative of God's presence, the Spirit's presence, and the role that it has in a complete transformation and the life that it gives. These rivers are located at directly in the middle of both of these places. And here through the Spirit, we've been given that same Spirit of living water who will transform our life and will one day bring a full transformation to this earth. So this is the transformation that must take place in our hearts through the ministry of the Spirit. And it's only brought about by faith in the gospel of Jesus. This is the desired goal that God has for the ends of the earth that all flesh might come and praise God through the atoning work of Jesus, that the tumult and rebellion of the peoples comes to an end, that the ends of the earth are in awe of God's nature and work, both as creator and redeemer. The missional God will not stop until this picture becomes a reality from the east and to the west, all the way to the ends of the earth, and he is committed to the glory and praise of his own name, which is our joy and satisfaction that he receives his due praise. He is the hope of the ends of the earth, and he has provided us an opportunity to take part in the missionary work, that our lives would be a sign, a mini sign, pointing to the ultimate sign of God's saving work and the flourishing joy that can be found in part now, but all the more to come. So as we think about this missionary work, what does this mean? How are we involved with this? I want to make three very brief kind of applications here. So God sovereignly reigns over all the earth, over all events, all time, all history, and we see that the redemption story from Abraham to Jesus to the early church to the church today is representative of God's missional heart. So three things that show how God is at work and then the invitation for us. So first of all, God is already at work. Let us grow in our desire to prayerfully watch and move where he moves. God is already at work let us grow in our desire to prayerfully watch and move where he moves. If we are to delight in the beauty of God's kingdom coming and his will being done, then on a heart level, 
we must surrender our lives in recognition that we are part of a much larger story than any story that we could build or dream for ourselves. When we think about Patton, John Patton, and when he heard about the work that God was doing in the South Islands near Australia, he couldn't shake it. The seed got planted and it grew and it grew and it grew. And he prayerfully watched from a distance until finally God brought him to a point where he was committed to go. Leaving a thriving ministry among the impoverished in Scotland, many discouraged him and thought him foolish to go because God had clearly blessed what he was doing there. But God put that seed in his heart and grew it and brought it to full maturity that he would go. God is already at work, and what is required of us is to prayerfully watch and move where he is moving. And the thing about a missional heart is that it starts with very small actions of faith and surrender to the will of God. And most of the time, is rarely initiated by some huge action that we take on ourselves and announce before the world on Instagram that we're going to do blah, and then we don't do it, Right? but it starts very small and it grows. Think about Paul. Was Paul sent to the nations immediately? No. <laughs> Paul had a, a period of 10 years of growth and development and maturity and refining of the mission that God gave to him. And here's the greatest <laughs> missionary that we see in the Bible, in terms of men, that is. Desires, they grow, and they lead to increasing sacrifice. But as God grows desires, and we give him our heart, the desires become full of rest, of peace, not of internal consternation and like, ah, I'm going. That's not how God works. God grows it. He builds it. He gives one step after another. And so as we experience the saving and purifying presence of Christ, as we are broken to mourn our own sin and the sin of the world around us, we come to understand more greatly and deeply that our only hope in life, our only hope for a lost world is the saving work and righteous presence of God. And that's what Patton and his ministry represented he went and he endured, but he was a presence pointing to the saving work of Christ. Second application, God provides strength and joy amidst the tumult. Let us step out believing this to be true that we might experience it. God provides strength and joy amidst the tumult. Let us step out believing this to be true that we might experience it. So there's an account where Patton is on the run from an unreliable and vacillating chief. He's been building relationship with this chief, but on, on the turn of a dime, stuff can change. And so he's on the run as hundreds of angry natives are hunting for him to end his life. And in his autobiography, he recalls an account of climbing up a tree 
and how God meets him in this tree. And I'm going to read it because it's beautiful. Being at the mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends, I, though perplexed, felt it best to obey. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging muskets and the yells of the savages, yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did the Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul, that when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus, alone yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon our own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? What a beautiful moment that the Lord will meet us and provide the strength and joy as the storm rages on around us. And that's a promise that he gives. And he has supported time and time again to people that have gone through a cultural threshold or barrier to bring the gospel to a dark place. This is no isolated story. God does this time and time again for his people. His grace and flourishing joy is presence, present even in the tumult. Maybe trust too that we can find the sweet relief and rest as we move towards the nations. Lastly, God promises the certainty of a future flourishing joy. God promises the certainty, certainty of a future flourishing joy. Let us forsake all. Uh, let us forsake all that we might gain all. Let us forsake all that we might gain all. Forsaking will look different for each of us in the individual circumstances and the calling of our lives. But as Christians in the diversity of this fellowship, it will all be moving in the same direction. Whether we go or prayerfully raise up to send or pray or support, the future of flourishing joy that God promises is certain. And if this is something that you're kind of asking a question, what does that look like for me in this day, in these circumstances? I strongly invite you to come to this journey course that we're doing with Gospel Grace starting on uh, next Monday on the 6th. Look at God's heart for missions across the Bible. We'll see what the task is and then the last one is, how, how do we, as a church, in our circumstances, be a part of this movement, a part of this mission? And there is a role for us all. So if you want to flesh that out and think more about that, please, please come and join us at that class. But as we think about this promise, the certainty of future flourishing joy, this was the promise that Jesus held on to as he endured the cross.
This is the promise that men like John Patton clung to as they followed in the steps of Jesus. And may we do this also, knowing that God has secured a future that cannot be taken away. We have nothing to lose. God's heart is for the ends of the earth to experience the flourishing joy of his presence. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.